This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Da-In, the host of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Professor Laura Hyani Gang about her new book, Traffic and Asian Women. Professor Laura Kang, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Da-In. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. Can you t- tell us a little bit about yourself to start off this podcast? Sure. Um, I guess I'll start at the beginning, which is, you know, I was born in Korea and I came to the U.S. when I was eight and a half and you know, grew up all over Southern California. And then I did my um, education, first my undergraduate at UC Berkeley, and I was a double major in ethnic studies and English. And I took a year off, uh, did some community work. And then I went to get my PhD in a program called History of Consciousness at UC Santa Cruz. Uh, and then I had a, um, I got this job at UC Irvine in 1995. But then between 95 and 96, I actually went back to Berkeley and did a, a postdoc at, in the English department. And then I formally kind of moved down to um, Southern California in 96 and you know, this has been my, you know, one and only job. And now I've been here 24, 25 years. Wow, yeah, that's like really long time in any job. But yeah, I have never held a job that long before. So a lot of admiration there. Yeah. Um, And how did you come to write a traffic in Asian women? Um, so there's, I, I guess I didn't say earlier that I had written a book early. My first book was a book called Compositional Subjects in Figuring Asian Slash American Women. So that book was a, it was, you know, drawn from my PhD dissertation. And it was a really a book about disciplinarity uh, and how to kind of, you know, think critically about whether these kind of new and emergent subjects of knowledge, such as the figure of Asian American women, how they were both kind of um, absorbed into traditional academic disciplines, but how those disciplines kind of resisted the introduction or absorption of these new emergent subjects. And so I wrote that book and that was, you know, many people thought that that was a book about interdisciplinarity. But I always emphasize that that was actually a book about disciplinarity about, or about how to think critically about disciplinarity. And so, you know, the question that was kind of left at the end of that book was, well, you know, now that you've kind of um, deconstructed disciplinarity, what's next? And so I really felt that the challenge was then to say, well, then how do you, you know, write a, what I consider to be an interdisciplinary book, 
you know, a book that was no longer bound by trying to qualify and be accepted into and recognized as a disciplinarily legitimate or legible um, project. And so, uh, you know, I actually in it in um, initially had a very very ambitious project which was you know one of the things that I was thinking at because you know I, I have this job in the Department of Gender and Sexuality Studies formerly women's studies at UC Irvine and that's I think another really distinctive thing about my intellectual trajectory is that I have never kind of been in a disciplinary location you know, uh, I like ethnic studies, history of consciousness, and then now in gender and sexuality studies. I've always, my relationship to the university has always been in an interdisciplinary or, you know, in some ways an anti-disciplinary location. And so, but one of the things that I was realizing, uh, you know, being in this position and kind of going to, you know, conferences, you know, going to invited talks was that one of the kind of real epistemological impasses that I saw in a field like gender and sexuality studies or women's studies that, you know, thinks of itself and calls itself as interdisciplinary was that, you know, back, I guess, you know, in the, uh, at the turn of the millennia, like around 2000, 2002, that's when, you know, um, compositional subjects first came out was that, I felt that there was this, you know, real impasse between the feminists who studied kind of texts or representations, uh, and feminists who um, studied "quote unquote" real women. Uh, and so, you know, I would often go to these talks, and at the end of these talks, and if it was a talk that was given by a feminist scholar that was looking at some form of intextualization or mediation you know, a scholar, a feminist scholar in the audience, usually a social scientist would kind of always ask this question, like, okay, you know, that's a really interesting um, analysis of a representation, but what about the real women? So I used to call it the real women question. Uh, So be, uh, but, you know, kind of behind that question, I thought was a kind of moralism that said, you know, if you were a real feminist, you actually studied real women. You know, that the closer that you study real women, you know, you were, uh, you know, and especially not just real women, but that you actually study the most like dispossessed, marginalized, violated group of women, you know, that gave you a certain kind of, you know, moral uh, and a methodological kind of superiority uh, over the feminists who studied like, you know, cultural studies, literature, film and media studies. And so I thought, you know, one of the ways in, you know, and I hadn't actually also seen a study that did this, which was a study that actually both looked at the, you know, fields of, you know, what I would call kind of studying social movements and studying representations or culture simultaneously. Yeah. So you had to really you know, uh, bridge that divide. And so and at the same time, I've you know, always been kind of interested from the very first book in terms of the question of knowledge formation and the institutionalization of knowledge. And so I thought, oh, you know, what uh, a truly interdisciplinary work would have to look at 
the these you know circuits uh, alongside and against each other. One is kind of the circuit of activism and politics. The other was the circuit of culture and representation. And then the other like transnational circuit that I was always very interested in was knowledge production or the kind of formalization of knowledge through universities, academic journals, academic publishing and whatnot. And so as a kind of extension of my first project, I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to look at, and just also because at that time there was you know, a lot of, um, you know, I think there, there was a lot of kind of hope on transnational feminism and this idea that, you know, we were kind of living in this new era of globalization and heightened mobility for different subjects. And that there was also, you know, uh, you know, politics had become transnational, culture had become transnational, and knowledge production has had itself become transnational in ways that I, thought, you know, I think many people, you know, there were always skeptics, but many, you know, people felt that it was a kind of promising uh, moment, you know, an, an opening up of new voices. And so I wanted to actually look then at, you know, how do you track how this um, figure of Asian women uh, was being kind of, you know, constructed and circulated across these three transnational circuits that often overlap with each other, right? Politics, knowledge, and culture. And so I spent a really long time, you know, doing a lot of um, research and, you know, um, writing, some writing around that. Uh, And then I realized at some point that it was just the project was too huge. And that's probably why, you know, it's taken me 18 years between my first book and my second book, because I was, you know, pretty much, and, you know, I wrote some like uh, uh, several different pieces that ended up being published in journals uh, along the way. But I realized, you know, that, that was just, you know, it was just too, too immense of a scope and that it could just not fit into a book. And then um, at the same time, while I was trying to do this, you know, right after I had published my first book, um, I was invited by Lisa Yoniyama, uh, who was then at UC San Diego, to think about, uh, you know, know, what what were my thoughts about the comfort women problematic? And she invited me to do a, a panel at the American Studies Association. And I, you know, I thought at that point I was just, you know, going to write a really short, like 10, 15 page conference paper. Uh, and then I'd be kind of done with it. But, you know, it was about, you know, something that I was kind of very ambivalent about. And then, you know, that paper ended up turning into a, a journal article in the Journal of Asian American Studies. And even then I thought, okay, you know, that was published in 2003 and I was kind of done with it. But in the meantime, just every year, there would be just some interesting new development uh, in the Comfort Women problematic that kept like pulling me back into thinking about it and, you know, and to really also then to think about um, you know, why was it that, you know, now we were like so many years out of the initial publicity about the system of Japanese military sexual slavery in the very early 1990s. 
And I thought, you know, and, and, you know, when that initial publicity happened and we saw the activists and the survivors, you know, uh, appearing at like UN conferences and whatnot, that there was a kind of moment of hope that these, you know, late disclosures would lead to finally some form of justice uh, and resolution over this issue. But as I saw that it wasn't happening, you know, there would be just constantly like new strange developments, setbacks. Uh, and so I decided, you know, I really wanted to, that was a really a question that I asked myself, which was, you know, why, you know, why did we not have the justice that I thought we would get to, you know, when we were really celebrating the transnational mobility of activism and culture, we thought that it would actually get us to something different. And so I decided to, you know, kind of look back and say, you know what, you know, maybe there's actually, you know, something within the structure of um global governance itself, you know, and the way in which things such as, you know, um, human rights or women's human rights have been delineated that actually, you know, contributed in some ways, not not, uh, consciously, but did contribute in kind of structural ways to the, both the kind of long illegibility of this issue uh, but also in its irresolution. And so then I ended up writing this book, which was a book about trying to, you know, in some ways it's a book, you know, I, there, I think there's different ways of thinking about what trafficking Asian women is. But, you know, it's really about how did this category of Asian women circulate internationally? You know, in a much longer arc that, you know, goes back to the beginning of the 20th century with something like the League of Nations uh, to say, you know, how was the the kind of early foundations of global governance itself and the ways in which Asian women were and were not recognized as legitimate subjects of justice uh, within this new international um, architecture that might have actually you know, led not perhaps directly to something like uh, the system of Japanese military comfort stations to take place in the first place, right? But also the fact that it was able to be kind of submerged and not addressed as a serious problem for 50 years. And so the book really is about, for me, kind of, it's a way of trying to address that question. Like, you know, it, it, there's a mystery, like, you know, why did it take so long? And, you know, maybe it took so long because there was actually a problem with the very architecture of global governance itself. Mm, yeah, yeah. I found that to be really fascinating as well. And I think you show that uh, yeah, very clearly in um your chapter two when you're analyzing and um you're showing how basically traffic became an actionable field and you problematize the professionalization of that as well as the experts who become really invested in the subjects that they study. And when you do that, you have to 
um, in a way, put them in a box. And that's also why, in a way, like it's like ironic how illegibility comes from an attempt to uh, legitimize it as like a system of knowledge. Um, so I wonder actually whether we can um, clarify for the audience, uh, you know, what you mean by Asian women as a method, um, because as you so insightfully pointed out, um, I think, you know, you're uh, in conversation with um, scholars like um, Candice Chen, who talks about Asia um, as method, uh, when they talk about this, um, you know, problematizes uh, the knowledge, knowledge and like professionalization as uh, limiting. Um, and I wonder whether you can talk about it for the audience, um, just to uh, clarify um, how you approach this in your book. Okay, so um, I think you're uh, referring to my chapter one, which is titled Asian Women as Method with a question mark, uh, which is uh, borrowing from uh, Kwan Sing Chen's uh, book, 2007 book called Asia as Method. Uh, and, you know, it's um, in 2007, I actually also published this essay called Epistemologies and something called a, a Companion to Gender Studies. It's one of those Blackwell series. And, you know, it, for me, you know, there, and this is something I think is an ongoing problematic within the field of gender studies, is that, you know, what I talk about in that essay on epistemologies uh, was that, you know, um, there's a way in which even in a field, in the field of women's studies or, you know, gender and sexuality studies, there is a strong um, inability or resistance to seeing variously um, marginalized, uh, you know, figures or, you know, constituencies of women, such as, you know, women of color, dark world women, or in my case, Asian women as not just, you know, specific, you know, uh, uh, kind of specific kind of material bodies of a population, but themselves as, you know, very kind of vexed and complex archives of knowledge production. Yeah. And so it's a way in which, and I think that this is, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm actually, you know, I actually tried to really unpack, which was that, you know, in some ways, it, we see this as a broader pro problematic within kind of feminist theory, uh, where, you know, Asian women, you know, women of color only stand as examples of a, you know, a broader kind of theoretical concept, but can, uh, are themselves not recognized as kind of theoretical figures or theoretical tools. And so I'm very kind of, um, you know, very troubled by what I call a kind of epistemological demotion, right? And so only certain people can do th theory and everybody else is just an example of theory. Uh, and so, um, you know, and when I was reading, you know, Kwan Sing Chen's very, um, you know, uh, very um, substantive and insightful book, uh, Asia as Method, 
you know, and it, he, uh, Chen was really also trying to uh, diagnose what he called that kind of epistemological impasse. This, you know, uh, in relation to Asian studies, you know, where he says, you know, Asian studies always has to be the, the kind of example to theory that comes from the West. It can never exa- itself be theory. And so one of the things that he proposes is to, he proposes intra-Asian epistemological exchange as a way of getting outside of that epistemological splitting and hierarchy between theory as envisioned as something that um, originates uh, from and is mainly positioned in the West. And then, you know, the the areas outside of the West uh, are just serving as specific instantiations of a theoretical concept. Uh, and so, you know, and I thought, yes, you know, I, that that kind of epistemological impasse we can see is something that also happens in relation to something like area studies or the relationship between area studies and theory. And so I really wanted to, you know, in, in proposing that Asian women as method and not as a bounded population of racialized bodies you know uh you know the book is really trying to say you know can we think about you know i mean i'm not you know saying that we can't do it it's really a proposition for each reader to you know to reflect upon and answer for themselves which is you know can a marginalized racialized figure like asian women can uh, be used as a broader kind of methodological portal to think about the world, you know? And so like, can we study global governance through Asian women? And what if, when we, when we use Asian women as a portal to you know, study the world in those terms, you know, uh, what are new insights that we, that we can gain, you know, uh, uh, beyond, you know, the kind of pretense in which global governance has been thought in terms of this realm of kind of disinterested, impersonal, um, horizon of you know human rights and um, human justice uh, and so you know I think it's uh, it's a proposition that I think is still going to be met with a lot of resistance uh, because I think you know uh, it, it's kind of, I'm just kind of putting it out there you know uh, and I don't know, like, you know, are we so kind of entrenched in these epistemological hierarchies between East and West, between white and non-white, uh, you know, uh, in, really, in relation to gender as well? You know, have we become so entrenched that, you know, no, we cannot think of Asian women as men. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and so you know, it, it, I'm, that's why I'm kind of very curious to see how people um, receive that. You know, and to say, of course, yes, Asian women can be, you know, uh, used as a method. You know, and other people would say, no, they cannot. And so, in addition to that, and so it's, you know, and going back to the question that you were asking about this example of. Um, how you know these early women who were kind of you know recognized as experts on women through global governance you know and so part of what happens is that you know there's a kind of inclusion of previously uh, marginalized or excluded populations uh, but the inclusion of those specific figures 
you know, also happens, you know, in ways that uh, tries to kind of absorb those differences without actually really challenging the fundamental assumptions and methods of the, you know, any structure of power knowledge. You know, and so I think that that's also what happened was that, you know, and I talk about this not just in terms of what happens in the early 20th century, something like the League of Nations. I trace it in relation to, you know, what happens in the 1970s or 1980s through the ways in which certain feminists working kind of across the realms of universities, NGOs, and then the UN end up becoming absorbed into the architecture of expertise within the UN itself. Uh, And once they become absorbed into that architecture of expertise, they also themselves become interestingly, you know, uh, invested in protecting the sphere of expertise uh, you know, and uh, and part of what that is doing was is doing is, you know, that they in that investment in that limited scope of expertise uh, also um, leads them to a I think a fairly small circle of citation where there's a small circle of uh, you know women or feminist activists uh, knowledge producers that cite each other's work. But also, not just that, but that they also then end up kind of resisting or critiquing or rejecting other modes of feminist knowledge production, you know, as either not rigorous or, you know, uh, not sufficiently uh, universal or not sufficiently objective, uh, not sufficiently pragmatic. You know, there's a lot of, you know, and so that's what I also mean by, you know, what when you see the kind of, you know, absorption of a certain group of activists into the, this, the, this kind of official realm of power knowledge, that also comes with certain gains, but also certain losses as well. Because, you know, once you, then you have to kind of uh, play by the, Establish protocols of you know what counts as you know legitimate or objective or reliable forms of data or knowledge. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mm, yeah, and this actually goes back to what you were saying earlier about uh, how people resisted, um, the people in social science resisted maybe more representational knowledge as something that is fundamentally different from studying the real women, as you called it, um, and how there is, you know, even in interdisciplinary field like gender studies, there is a sharp divide between uh, maybe like humanities and, you know, studies on representation versus studies on the real lives of the women and it has certain repercussion because as you said it just reproduce the knowledge as it has been done among like very small circle of people privileging one form of knowing over another 
Yeah, so that's uh, that's really that's really fascinating, and that's something that I think interdisciplinary fields still have to contend with, and also shows the legacy of disciplinary knowledge that has not been able to, um, in a way, like overcome its limitation. Um, and I also uh, during your conversation, uh, during what you were saying earlier, I was also thinking about your chapter on just compensation mm-hmm. and especially what you were saying about how like, you know, uh, representing these women always as like violated, you know, that, uh, you know, the expert, the, the women have to protect these women. Um, so representing them in certain way and kind of presenting them as like, a bonded unit of knowledge that is always connected to this idea of like violation. Um, you talk about how uh you know only representing them as such actually hide um labor exploitation and economic dispossession and in just compensation you connect um the Asianization of economic miracle, um, and how uh, showing basically revealing um the uh, exploitation of women's labor, um, and political economy should be part of feminist epistemology, uh, that shows more nuances in the narrative, which I found to be really fascinating. So I wonder whether you can or you can um tell us a little bit more about that and how you came to arrive at this conclusion. Okay. Oh, I, you asking me this question made me realize that maybe it would have actually been helpful for me to just broadly sketch out the outline of the book itself, so that people know. Yeah, people know like where you know what the chapter on just compensation. Uh, so uh, the way which the the book is structured, it has um, seven chapters. It has an introduction. Uh, and then a chapter that that I already discussed called Asian Women as Method, which really you know lays out this question about you know what how are ways in which Asian women have become and uh, become legible and also illegible, uh, and how do we how can we kind of think about the ways in which both uh, they have been also made illegible, but also that. There's been these, you know, really unexpected um, transfigurations uh, and, you know, different um, investments in both, you know, sympathy for this figure of the violated Asian women, but also in terms of, you know, one's expertise in relation to this figure. Uh, that's, you know, like who claims sympathy, who claims expertise, that's also switched in these really surprising ways that I talk about in that chapter. And so after I do this kind of question, uh, ask, you know, have a chapter you know, posing this question about, you know, just can we actually, you know, do what I said, asked earlier, like, can we actually radically shift the way that we can think about Asian women? And then, so what I do from there is, and then there's two parts uh, of the main body of the book. Uh, the first part is by saying, you know, uh, kind of carrying through this idea of Asian women as method is, you know, I said, okay, I'm going to kind of use this figure of Asian women by looking at uh, three categories, three generic categories of female injury that have been taken up 
uh, in and through global governance. One is traffic in women. The second is the category of sexual slavery. And the third is a more recent category of violence against women. So, you know, I do three categories of generic female injury. And then what I look at is then, you know, we have three categories of injury. The second uh, part of the book looks then about, looks then at three uh, modes of redress. Uh, you know, partially in relation to those categories of injury, but, you know, partially in ways that actually um, veer from those categories as well. So the three categories of redress that I look at are um, the disclosure of truth. And these are, you know, the modes of redress that have also been uh, part of the demands for justice by the Come For Women redress movement. But they've also constituted the demands for redress or justice by many other uh, social movements. Uh, and so I really wanted to point to three in particular. One was about the disclosure of truth of, a, you know, that, you know, one way that we redress an atrocity is that, you know, we have to have the full truth of what happened uh, come to light. Uh, the second, uh, which uh, Diane, you just referred to, is a, a chapter called Just Compensation, which is uh, this idea that, um, you know, victims of atrocities are entitled to compensation or material or monetary compensation. But we can kind of think about compensation, you know, more broadly. And then the last is this demand for memorialization that, you know, uh, and, you know, it's kind of going, I think, to that, the, the, um, this general kind of common sense wisdom that, you know, in order to prevent something horrible from happening again, you know, we have to properly record it in history. We have to re- know how to remember it in a prop, you know, in proper ways. And so that's what, um, you know, those, I look at, you know, truth, compensation, and memorialization as three modes of redress. And then I kind of circle around the comfort women problematic, but also open it up to much broader ways. So in that, um, that chapter on just uh, compensation, you know, one of the things that I also wanted to look at is, you know, uh, I think uh, one of my, um, I say this at the very introduction of the book is that, you know, one of my kind of modest goals, you know, if I can kind of pare it down for the book was, you know, and it, it goes to this matter of thinking about Asian women as method, not just as a, a population, which is, I said, I want the, you know, comfort women problematic to matter more broadly and mean less intensely. You know, and so uh, be less figured as this object of multiple pain, violation, and abuse, but to say, you know, what if we were to really try to think about this particular history uh, in, you know, in the the kind of, you know, it's not by no means comprehensive, but in a fuller and denser web of connection. Uh, through which it comes about and becomes both, you know, uh, unredressable in the words of Lisa Yonayama and uh, partially redressed, you know, in a much more belated way. And so, you know, this, um, going back to this matter of compensation, you know, I think an obvious, you know, way about thinking about compensation for the victims and survivors of the military comfort system is to say, you know, um, 
should there, you know, this idea that uh, they should be entitled to a monetary payment, okay? Uh, and, you know, uh, and there's been, you know, a lot of back and forth around that, you know, uh, which is, you know, I think the idea, the principle that they should be entitled to material compensation is perhaps uh, much more easier to accept uh, and support than to try to then uh, come to the proper calculation of that compensation. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I think everyone's like, of course we want compensation for them, you know, but then, you know, how do we calculate what they are entitled to? You know, are all of the victims entitled to the same amount of compensation? Are all of the victims entitled to? I mean, are 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 there um, survive? Are there surviving family members entitled to compensation? So you know, if they've passed away, do the people in their lives? So you know, it actually then raises the whole host of other questions. But I really wanted to try to you know say you know it's not just a matter of. Um, who, you know, like how much should be given that, you know, but to say, what if we were to think about this question of compensation in a much uh, broader way than a kind of individual payment to a specific person? Yeah. But to say, you know, there's something I really wanted to talk about the fact that the whole kind of post-war political economy of the Asia Pacific and the relationship of the U.S. to Japan and then later to Korea and to Taiwan in the the whole you know um, development of uh, the um, Asia, the economic hierarchies in the Asia Pacific region in the post war era uh, are you know we need to actually think about that in order to understand how uh, you know uh, in order to understand how these this uh, system was not redressed, but also in order to understand why this matter of compensation becomes so difficult and um, tricky to calculate at this late moment. And so I actually say, you know, uh, what if we were to think about this issue of compensation in this much, in a much broader history in which, uh, you know, this certain relationships of, um, Aid, you know, uh, what's called you know foreign aid, uh, has really shaped the architecture of justice and also labor within the Asia Pacific region. Uh, and to say, you know, can we try to think about this issue of you know compensation for the uh, women in relation to how this history has shaped this incredibly uneven terrain? of um, female labor exploitation in the Asia Pacific region. But that becomes really complicated because that's, you know, I think, you know, in that sense, you know, I would say uh, some people would argue, you know, that you're taking the focus away from the the victims and survivors, you know, by painting this broad scope. Uh, And that, that in itself is doing a kind of injustice to them. But I do want to, you know, the, one of the reasons why I needed to um, paint that broader picture 
uh, of the development, the kind of uneven development of capitalism, specific, specifically as it was led uh, and shaped by U.S. Cold War hegemony in Asia, uh, was you know precisely to uh, you know ask this question about you know what does it mean to think of, you know because the other thing about composition is like you know, what what are what should these women be compensated for yeah should they be and i think i was you know especially troubled by a uh, certain tendency to think uh, uh, to calculate the greatest loss that they bore was the loss of their sexual purity uh, and chastity you know uh, which ended up i felt like inadvertently um shoring up uh, this kind of, you know, patriarchal logic of what is most valuable about women, you know, or females uh, is, you know, and so I really th- thought, you know, uh, what if um, it's not just that you're there being compensated for the violence and violation, you know, but, you know, uh, there was a, like, what if we were, you know, I think that there's a kind of reluctance to think about the comfort women as also figures of highly exploited uh, and uh, violently extracted labor, uh, you know, and so including not just their sexual labor, uh, certainly, right? But then, you know, many of the women also performed other kinds of labor, cleaning, caring thing, you know. Uh, and so, but I was really, uh, you know, interested in why there was this reluctance to really think of them as figures of labor, as work, because, you know, there is a sense that, well, if you start to think about, them as possible figures of labor, it also then brings in this issue of consent, you know? Uh, and so, you know, did uh, uh, this idea that if you think about them as workers, you start to make this question about whether they uh, consented to this, um, uh, their, you know, sexual enslavement and violation, that becomes made murky. And so, but I, you know, and I think that that's one of the things that, you know, one of, in the, the very early, um, uh, there was a really insightful article uh, that was published in 1999 by Catherine H. S. Moon, where she talks about the fact that there are these two different South Korean uh, movements against the you know, um, exploitation of women's sexual labor by, uh, you know, foreign military um, forces. And so she compares, you know, the um, comfort women, um, you know, Japanese comfort system or military sexual slavery in relation to Korean women who were sex workers for the U.S. military. And that initially she said there was, you know, these two social, these two movements, uh, initially there seemed to be a, you know, a a kind of mutual recognition that they can be a kind of coalition, Uh, but that that coalition falls apart because some of the, um, you know, survivors, but also activists, disavow that um, relationship to, or commonality to Korean women sex workers for the U.S. military. By saying, you know, we're not, you know, those, you know, women were like, they're willing whores, you know, we were truly the victims, we, you know, we didn't have any choice. 
And so, you know, that really complicated this question of like, they wanted to really disavow from, you know, relationship to other uh, figures of what I think is, you know, highly exploited and violently extracted sexual labor. And so I wanted to really ask this question about, you know, what were, what would it mean to, you know, to think about them as figures of female labor? And in, you know, I think, um, with with some recognition that I know that you know that will that that proposition that I'm making will not be you know welcomed by some of the uh, the um, survivors and activists you know because then it shades them back into that category of association with other other kinds of sex workers. Mm, yeah yeah exactly yeah i i definitely heard about the debate between the um comfort women quote unquote and then um especially like camp town women and uh how they are in denial like a uh, comfort women uh, deny any association because it uh, kind of uh, undermine uh, the foundation of their advocacy as you know them being the chest uh, you know innocent women who are dragged into this uh, um exploitation of uh, their bodies and like violation of their bodies so yeah i, I think um the point that you're making is really valuable and also made me think about uh, the idea of necropolitical labor that Jin Kyung Lee suggests in her book as well. Um, so kind of this fine line of like uh, acknowledging that, you know, it's a labor that is, uh, you know, conditioned to social death um, and it's a labor that is really important for the, you know, colonial state as well as decolonizing state in the case of um, Korea for the capital accumulation. So there is inequality in that, but also the importance of acknowledging it as a labor um, so that, you know, you're not also putting people into a box of, you know, like violation and also in a way taking away their power by uh, representing only uh, in one way. And uh, I think, yeah, I think it's really important to uh, point out um, these like discrepancies. Um, and I wonder whether we can also talk about like language and like translation as well, because um, this is something that you talk a lot uh, about. And then, you know, with the categories as well, and like how this knowledge with trans, with the promise of transnational uh, feminism, the knowledge travels, right? And you talk also a lot about you know how experts categorize and like data gather and in a way like surveil uh, these women under the name of humanitarianism in um, chapter five and truth disclosure you also talk about how uh, you know these like forms of truth about comfort women are um, translated into English um, and you analyze photographs and Nisei documents um, so I wonder uh, whether we can um, talk about, uh, you know, this issue of uh, translatability and how um, the, uh, yeah, how how to negotiate, you know, like as a scholar, uh, how like you know advocacy groups that may like represent one thing, but then this might get distorted and in a way it's not necessarily a question of like what really happened but rather about representational politics uh, which I think is also like a recurring theme throughout your book as well this like relations between you know the truth making and um, uh, politics uh, that is underlying it okay 
Um, maybe this is also a good time to, yeah, because I think in that ch uh, chapter on um, Asian women as method, I do end with this, you know, um, a question about, you know, there are all these different um, English translations or, you know, terms that circulate in English. And here, I think I, you know, I also want to be very, very clear that, you know, my uh, book is not a, you know, it's far from a, a kind of comprehensive history of the comfort women redress movement. I'm really actually interested in how it circulates. You know, I'm not really even, you know, talking about how it's unfolded in Korea or in Taiwan or in the Philippines, which have their own really uh, dense and complex histories uh, that, you know, have been written uh, and, uh, you know, have partially been translated. But I'm really looking about looking at, you know, how are the things, you know, what are the things that have been um, circulated, translated and circulated in kind of Anglophone, um, both, you know, uh, the documents of, of global governance, but in uh, U.S. academic scholarship, you know, U.S.-based academic scholarship. And so, you know, that's also why in some ways the comfortable women, you know, becomes for me a really interesting case to think with because it's a case from, that from the very beginning has uh, been, you know, grappling, you know, that, that has actually posed this problem of what I call it's a problem of nomination. What do you call what happened? Yeah, uh, especially because it becomes immediately a problem of translation. Yeah, and so initially, you know, there was you know this uh, um, uh, kind of um, literal translation from the Japanese the term to the English, you know, comfort women ianfu into uh, to comfort women, uh, but almost immediately, you know, and then everybody, you know, used to kind of place it in uh, scare quotes or brackets to say, you know, this is a euphemism, you know, uh, that was used. Uh, and many people pointed out that it was actually a euphemism that was used. You know, the, the problem with the comfort women is that it wasn't just a euphemism, but, you know, as many euphemisms are uh, when uh, specifically when they're used to uh, describe a certain kind of um, disempowered or exploited group, uh, the euphemism exists precisely to cover over the fact of their violation and disempowerment, right? And, you, know, you call that group something else than what's really happening so that you can cover over uh, and distract from what's really happening. And comfort women, I think, is precisely a term that operates in that way, right? Because it's, an, it, it's a term that, you know, it's not, uh, it doesn't like name the women's own ontology, you know, it, it, it what it names is their particular, uh, you know, function. Uh, and, you know, uh, the, who the primary kind of um, objects or beneficiary of that named function is, right? So that they're not, you know, uh, and so that's why everyone said, you know, it's the cruelest term, because you're, uh, you're uh, giving the name comfort, you know, uh, to the the this you know horrible case of uh, violation and atrocity because the naming itself says no, it's not about what's happened to that subject. It's about what that subject is providing to somebody else, which is comfort, right, to the soldiers, uh, and so that's why 
but and so initially then there was you know um immediately a um many many arguments and articles written to try to say you know let's not use this term comfort women yeah uh and the, uh, the activists themselves you know in an early um you know uh, conference decide that they're going to move forward with the english term of japanese military sexual slavery uh, you know, and even to this day, you know, there's ongoing debate about whether, you know, is military sexual, is sexual slavery itself a more accurate or efficacious term than comfort women, you know? And so that's why I actually then end up um, writing this, you know, ended up doing the research and writing that chapter uh, titled Sexual Slavery to say, even though that activist wager to change, because initially, you know, when you look at the first uh, ways in which the um, category, you know, I look at the fact that, like, if you look at the first uh, mentions of them in the UN documents, you know, they're referred to as, like, women drafted for sexual service, prostitutes, you know, a whole range of terms is used, you know, but then this idea that uh, this wager that sexual slavery would uh, lead to kind of greater justice itself didn't entirely pan out. And one of the things I actually do in my chapter on sexual slavery is to say, actually, you know, there's a really actually um, complicated genealogy of that term, you know, that is actually um, uh, very problematic, you know, uh, and it was in some ways the ways in which it came into circulation in the you know 80s uh, by feminists uh, was done in such a way that actually uh, you know I argue was um, you know uh, based upon a kind of false understanding uh, or and a false analogy to um, racial slavery, you know, uh, this false analogizing of gender to race that also uh, discounted, you know, so the wager was, if you let's name it sexual slavery, because that sounds to be, that sounds much worse, you know, than prostitution, you know, and that people will be much more willing to act against something called sexual slavery, you know, because look, you know, we, uh, uh, slavery was abolished, and so if we want to abolish prostitution, let's call it sexual slavery. And, you know, but then, you know, one of the things that I argue is that it, it was a kind of based on a kind of misrecognition that, you know, slavery itself or the kind of anti-slavery um, moves or conventions or agreements within global governance uh, themselves were either uh, on, the, you know, on the one hand very effective in ending de facto slavery. You know, uh, but also uh, did so with a full realization of the horrors of racial slavery as well. You know, and so I said that that was kind of based on a kind of misrecognition of what I call an unequivocal, I mean, it, uh, not unequivocal, a very equivocal and partial uh, uh, history of slavery as well. So, you know, so that basic move of, you know, calling it, uh, Japanese military sexual slavery also didn't change the question. And so that's why ultimately I said, you know, 
I like to use the term um, instead of referring. I I want to kind of uh, I uh, choose to elect the term comfort women problematic. And so that when we say we're not referring to real women, <laughs> when we say comfort women, yeah, yeah, uh, it's a, we're referring to this large problematic of translation, nomination, miscomprehension, misappropriation, uh, contestation. You know, and so in that sense, you know, uh, I feel that um, none of these terms are adequate. But comfort women uh, you know, retains for me is that it's you know it, it's a scandalous category you know it, it's uh, it's not a, a um, category that anybody you know it's an an uneasy one that everybody has to think about when you use that and you always have to use it in with those brackets you know. Uh, that you're always kind of reminded of, you know, like you know, there's a blank there, uh, and uh, you know how you decide to fill in that blank uh, is, you know, something that uh, you know each person can, do, you know, uh, can and must do with the full realization of the baggage of any one term that you choose to, uh, you know, replace comfort women with. Uh, that you know, no term is pure uh, and accurate when you're referring to this very, uh, and you know, tense, very um, complicated and vexed uh, constellation of you know, uh, of capital, of racism, of imperialism. You know, so much is uh, happening within that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and as you like really beautifully put it, um, in a way, it's like such a meta term now that's so riddled with history that in a way it's a term that shows by itself <laughs> um, how the terminology is always contentious and uh, there are these interlocking systems that shape uh, how we understand, uh, like the understanding, the knowledge formation, as you said. Yeah, um, so we have taken up a lot of your time, so I, uh, I should proceed to the final question, but the, before that, there was a question that I wanted wanted to ask you about, you know, because your book is um, very unconventional and it's interdisciplinary and you take a lot of risk. Uh, so I did want to ask you about, um, you know, do you have any advices for those who are writing dissertation or books who do want to challenge these boundaries but are afraid of how they might be received? Um, do you have any advices for those who want to kind of challenge these um, interdisciplinary uh, boundaries as you have done? Yes, well, I yeah, I wouldn't say. Yeah, my advice would be don't start off with the goal of challenging the boundaries. You know, I always say actually listen and be attentive to, you know, first your you know object or your set of questions. Okay, uh, and if you know, and really be willing to you know go a uh, go you know deep down that rabbit hole of, you know, that archive, you know, or that problematic. And, you know, I, you know, the book itself, you know, it wasn't like I set out to, you know, um, challenge any boundaries, you know, but I said, you know, 
what if I were to, without worrying about fitting into any boundaries, you know, what if I were to, you know, uh, just, you know, follow one question down and that that leads that led me to this set of texts, you know, for example, you know, I wanted to know, you know, how was I found out, okay, you know, the, the League of Nations, they wrote this, they did this study in 1927 and 1932 on the traffic in women. Yeah. Uh, and so once I started reading that, it, it, you know, I became really interested in like, well, what was the League of Nations? You know, uh, what else did they do? You know, and how might, how, what other things that they do might have been relevant to or influential in shaping this other stuff that happened later on, for example, around slavery. And so in some ways, I, uh, my advice is to really be attentive to your texts, you know, and where you're, you know, look at always, like, look at the bibliographies of your text, you know, uh, analyze the different, I mean, uh, investigate the different figures or, you know, um, authors that are cited in the text. You read it for yourself rather than, you know, go, rather than just accepting what that author is saying about it. Uh, and that, you know, uh, try to really kind of pursue, you know, that kind of, organic but deep line of questioning uh, without, you know, worrying about, you know, well, what is somebody going to think, you know, how is this going to be intelligible, you know, within a job market? Don't worry about that, you know. I mean, because I feel like I always want to say, you know, uh, we, you know, um, Everybody wants to know uh, what, you know, the, the most interesting thing that somebody wants to know from you, you know, or anybody is what is most interesting to you, <laughs> you know, what you think, not what you think might be interesting to other people. Do you understand? You know, because like you, you know, yeah, like each person is that like, you know, reservoir of curiosities, frustrations, desires, and investments. And so, you know, don't start off by saying, oh, you know, I'm going to um, uh, challenge this boundary, you know, because uh, that's not, then you're just being reactive, you know. Uh, and so there's a difference between, you know, not being bounded by the discipline. You know, uh, then, uh, and, you know, um, setting out to undo the disciplines. Do you understand? Yeah. So I, I always say, you know, but, you know, really try to, you know, go at, and also to look at your question from several different angles, you know, rather than thinking like you have to have an argument and then you have to produce the evidence. Like, look at the, I always just say, be attentive to your object, you know, uh, and let your object lead you to the questions, you know, uh, rather than, you know, coming, having a set of questions and then just looking for the answer in the object. Yeah, yeah. It goes back to what you were writing in your book about the creation of experts and knowledge in the sense that, that they are looking for something, they are looking for validation, they are looking for legitimacy. So they are only going to find what they're seeking to see because I guess their life is in a way, I guess their career is you know invested in it. So uh, obviously like their evidence is going to be limited and 
and in a way challenging, as you say, uh, will lead to a same act, like same result, because in a way you're repeating what they're doing in wanting to be different. So yeah, I think that's yes. such a wonderful advice. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. I mean, we never, I think, you know, uh, I think just academic scholarship would be much more interesting if like we could have a um, like a second set of footnotes, yeah, which are actually because you know it, it shouldn't just be uh, you know what we um, discovered with certainty, yeah, uh, but you know if we could have a whole you know we understand that you know an article or a book has to have a certain, you know, just to, by what uh, material form it is, right? It has, there is a kind of linearity, right? Because there's like one page leads to the next page and there is a certain kind of line that has to be um, followed. But, you know, I think what's always interesting is, you know, there's, you know, I'm sure every researcher has done this, is that every article or book, you know, is not just, uh, you know, the kind of final result of the smooth over set of arguments that lead to and um, support, you know, one main premise, right? But, you know, it, it what's also not there in the published form are all those like really interesting and thorny questions that you know we uh, you know uh, that never got resolved you know and for me like it would be so much more interesting if we can also each person can also like write that up like what were the questions that I had to you know become in some ways like abandoned or put aside because you had to finish this essay right you know but that that are still there you know, uh, and so, you know, to, I mean, unfortunately, we haven't come up with a form of scholarship, you know, and maybe we can, you know, which is like, you know, it, it, we think about footnotes as like the evidentiary stuff, right, or explanatory. But if we can have, you know, uh, a separate set of notes, you know, we'll have to give them some other name, right, which uh, is it, it, about like all the different tangents that uh particular argument or essay or book, the different tangents that, you know, you could have gone on to uh, that, you know, it might be interesting, like that might be something other people could pick up on, right? You know, and so then it would be a much more kind of like communal and engaging way of, you know, really thinking about, you know, because in some ways like writing, it really, I really think about it as kind of collective thinking or shared thinking. Yeah, rather than a display of expertise or mastery that, you know, you're often uh, led to um, consider it as because of the pressures of professionalization, you know, but if we think about this as a kind of like um, collective reading and thinking project, it would be really interesting, you know, to like, uh, where we can also like, Everything that we write or publish is, you know, also has all those like tendrils or tentacles that come out from it. Yeah, that could be taken up and explored further by somebody else. And, you know, that will also produce its own set of tentacles. Yeah. And so it's this web that's created, web of curiosity, rather than, you know, these compartmentalized, individualized units of mastery. 
Yeah, that's such a beautiful metaphor, and I especially love the idea of rethinking footnotes as conversation starter rather than evidentiary notes. I think that's really.、Uh, I think it's like. Really points to a direction that scholarship can go to in terms of being more collaborative and actually being more truthful to why scholarship exists in terms of its like curiosity and knowledge sharing. Yeah, so I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, and sorry, it's already past an hour, but I do have a final question, which is, what is your next project that you're working on now that you have finished your book? So the next project that I'm looking at is, you know, I I thought about this as kind of a three book、uh, thing, which is my, you know, my first book was about, yeah, my first, you know,、uh, I've been told that I I do a lot of things in threes,、uh, but、uh, I, my first book was about knowledge. You know, because I was like thinking about, okay, you know, what are the three things, like, you know, that really mattered to me. You know, but yeah, and so my first book was about knowledge. The second book, I would say, is loosely、uh, about justice.、Uh, and then I was like, okay, once you have knowledge and justice, what do you? What's next? What is, what matters to me? You know, because I was like, well, what really matters to me, even more than knowledge and justice, is like. In- endurance, like just surviving, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, and、um, I like the、uh, so the the book is re- loosely、uh, called Salim, which is a Korean word that has you know multiple connotations, right? Because it has a gendered connotation of like housekeeping. Uh, but it also means it has connotations of like work. And labor, right?、Uh, and then, but also this, you know,、um, it also suggests, you know, the kind of you know ability to、uh, kind of endure and survive in、uh, hopefully just also creative ways, you know, and life-sustaining ways. And so, I really wanted to do a book about, you know, that.、Um, The Korean、um, diaspora、uh, in the 20th century、uh, and into the 21st century, but looking at it really through the figure of、um, specific、uh, cases of Korean women and how they have, you know, made and done salim <laughs> in different historical moments and、um, different places in the world. And you know, and so、um, I, the figure that I actually wanted to start w- off with was is a figure that I was hoping to go to Korea to do some archival research,、uh, which is a figure from trafficking Asian women that I mentioned really briefly in the chapter on truthful disclosure, which is there's this really interesting、um, Korean nurse. Who was captured and interrogated as a Japanese prisoner of war,、uh, and given the nickname Kim uh, or um, Miyamoto is another,、uh, I think, a name that was attributed to her. But I'm really interested in this figure because she's kind of an extraordinary figure. That's you know she's very very thoughtful and feisty. Yeah. I mean, she has a very strong voice and a point of view, you know. And so, but you know, I 
I I know that she was repatriated because she was you know captured by the Allies and eventually sent back to Korea. And you know I, I so it, I'm gonna I'm, I'm starting off with that figure to say you know like what happens to her you know? Uh, and then, so she's the kind of, so I'm kind of trying to look at both like real figures, but archival figures, figures that you can't quite completely, um, identify and locate, but have to kind of speculate upon the lies that they may have led in, uh, the aftermath of all of this. And so I'm going to be, uh, doing, um, you know, kind of writing something, maybe a little, um, uh, creative, uh, you know, this kind of creative nonfiction around this figure. And then, but from there, basically uh, going off and actually looking at different communities of the Korean diaspora in different places at different historical moments in the 20th century to say, you know, like, how, what, if, what would it mean to write a, you know, it's an extension of a similar project where I said, you know, what would it mean to write a history of the 20th century through the figure of Korean women? You know, and so first book is like, what would it mean to think about disciplines through Asian American women? Second book, what does it mean to think about uh, global governance and justice and transnational capitalism in, in, the, in relation to the figure of Asian women? You know, and this, uh, the third book would be, you know, what if you, we were to tell, you know, th- uh, this long history, because somehow these, you know, these long, broad histories, uh, they're, suppo- they're often told uh, from a kind of impersonal, uh, uh, kind of omniscient point of view, as if you can, like, you know, cover it. But they all are these massive, you know, uh, histories. They also are in their ways really particular histories, except that they haven't re- acknowledged that they're particular histories. You know, they claim to be global histories. You know? And so for me, I'm like, well, I want to tell this history of the t- story of the 20th century, but can you do it through Korean women? Like, what would, it, what would the 20th century look like if we told it through the figure of and the different migrations and modes of survival uh, by uh, Korean women. So it's kind of a, it's kind of my tribute to also my, my mother and my grandmother and, you know, uh, all these amazing Korean women who've just been able to make lives for themselves under the most impossible conditions. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really fascinating. And it like kind of reminds me of, you know, the discussion on how like, mythology um, and like history is basically can become such because they have a universal presence and can be stripped of its individual narratives but then as you said eh, you know like that distinction is actually quite eh, you know like eh, quite faint and as you also said you know with like Asia as a method and Asian women as a method eh, you know for Asian women who can never become theory like eh, that's just a um, you know pure like epistemological discrimination and reduction so yeah that sounds like a very fascinating book i'm looking forward to reading it one day and it comes out (laughs) yes hopefully it won't take as long as my second book (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah well thank you so much for this amazing podcast Uh, i really enjoyed and learned so much from you and i really hope that you'll have a happy holidays full of health and happiness (laughs) 
Thank you, Diane. Thank you for inviting me yeah. and for your very, very generative questions. Oh, yeah. Oh, my pleasure.